0: you turn in your Bible to the book of Titus, one of the shorter books of the New Testament, right before the large book of Hebrews, we're beginning a three-part series led by the associate pastors while Dr. Rogers is taking a three-week vacation. For our family, it's been a busy summer of baseball games and swim meets, and it's not uncommon at such events to hear from a coach or parents or even from your own mouth words to the effect of, do your best, encouraging a young athlete. And at times, those at times those words are genuine, and at other times they're masking secret desires to win, to see your little competitor dominate and to team to win the championship. Competition is fun and healthy, and yet it is oftentimes an arena for competing desires a tension between character development and teamwork versus the will to dominate or gain bragging rights. We begin this morning a three-part mini-series on spiritual seduction, examining how our desires are shaped by the world and how Scripture can help conform our desires to what pleases God. Desiring God's best requires not only that we do our best, but that we genuinely love and desire that which God desires. Please follow as I read Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's holy, inspired word. Let us pray. Father, I would humbly and yet boldly ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I traveled to Houston, Texas, for our denomination's general assembly, an annual event. And I took with me two of my younger sons, and we stayed with my parents, who live out on the northwest side of Houston. And each day in my commute, which was about a 30-mile commute back and forth from the suburbs to uh, downtown, I, as as always when I visit Houston, was amazed by the expansion and the growth and the new housing development and the new shopping malls and what used to be a field is now developed and a forest are now buildings. One of the things that caught my attention was the growing number and size of car dealerships. Toyota. And Honda, and Porsche, Land Rover, and Mercedes, you name it, they had it. And, and on and on they went down the stretch of the freeway. And, and in fact, in, in Houston, a, a common car dealership is at least two or three times the size of one on Mannheim Pike. In fact, the, the CarMax near my parents' house is easily twice the size of the one here in Lancaster. And yes, everything is bigger in Texas. A second thing that I noticed during my commute back and forth was the number of tattoo parlors. Places for people to get body piercings and to get body art. And uh, I've been thinking about this, this rapid and growing acceptance uh, of people's desire to express themselves and declare themselves unique through body art. And uh, if you're not aware of this growing, t- growing trend, just go to your neighborhood pool or go to the beach. Uh, tattoos are everywhere. And I'm not necessarily being critical of tattoos. That's a topic for another sermon. But it does reveal the desires of our times. But there's a, a third thing I noticed in Houston that uh, is even more disturbing, is the growing number of fortune tellers. It seemed like every couple of miles there was a, an outfit for fortune-telling, and tarot card reading, and I was thinking about what drives people to desire that. This this desire for an interpreter, this desire for inside knowledge, this desire to maybe get a glimpse into what may lie around the corner. These three signs of the times. Desire for status. Desire for self-expression. Desire for um, control during uncertain times another great desire was revealed to me by by the fact that this great city, which was 4 million people when I was growing up in the last 20, 30 years, has mushroomed, grown by 50%, with over 6 million residents. The stats show that at least 25% of the residents of Houston were born outside the United States. And I believe that all these things reveal... A deep desire of many people, their desire for the American dream, for freedom, for opportunity, and wealth. A human desire is not necessarily evil. And yet, corrupted by this fallen world, our desires are all too often worldly and self centered. God's word gives us hope that we need not be slaves to worldly and fleshly desires. But God gives grace and strength through Jesus Christ to desire what God desires. So how does God's word, hel- word help us to desire him over worldly desires? One well, in verse 11, Paul has an announcement that, that grace has appeared. It's like you're at a party or a social setting and you're looking around and asking and someone says, oh yeah, grace is already here. She's arrived. We know from Scripture that, that grace saves. That it's by grace that God offers salvation to all those who would believe and repent and turn to Christ. And verse 12 tells us that grace is also a teacher. Grace teaches, or trains, rather, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And say yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And where is it that we're supposed to learn how, how to renounce and how to embrace, how, how to put off and to put on, to say no to certain things and say yes? Paul says it's this present age. You've got to be kidding me. We live in a world and in a society that's constantly bombarding us with self-centered messages, marketing designed to titillate desire, to breed discontentment, to show us constantly the things we don't have and promise us happiness if we would just buy it. The world would squeeze us into its mold to live in ungodly fashion, to live as though God did not exist. We just kind of mosey on our way like practical atheists. Worldly messages press upon us the desire to live for self, fend for yourself, have it your way. You deserve a break today. We are constantly assaulted with desire inducing messages and products and services. To please ourselves. But grace is a teacher that shows us something better. It enables us to desire that which is better and best, to please God and live for His glory. Every parent learns that you have to train a child's desires. They come out of the womb a little hairball of want and need, and it's just it's not natural for them to desire what is good and best. That child has to be trained to like green beans. That we, in like ways, you and I have to be taught and trained by God's grace. Just as a child has to be trained to share, to tell the truth, to wait patiently, to express gratitude. You and I must be taught by God's grace to desire God's best. And thankfully, we have another helper to renounce worldly desires. Grace has a twin sister. Her name is Glory. You see, verse 11 points to the fact that grace appeared at the first coming of Christ. But then verse 13 announces, looking ahead to the appearing of glory, the second coming of Christ. And what's beautiful and unique about verse 13 is that it's one of the most explicit references in Scripture to the full deity of Christ. It refers to him as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we believe that great and God is, refer to Jesus because of the Greek syntax. There's an, an article in the, in the Greek language that's before the word great. And it makes great and God and Savior a, a whole package that applies to Jesus. And this is certainly how the early church fathers interpreted this verse. We also believe that, that Paul is borrowing from common titles that the Romans would use to ascribe to their gods and emperors. To make the point that there is only one true, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace's desire is that we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The glory also reveals God's desire to redeem us from our lawlessness, and to purify a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. For we were wicked and lawless, ignorant and rebellious. You and I were slaves to sin. And Jesus came to our rescue to redeem us, to buy us back, to ransom us at the cost of his own precious blood, to make us his own possession. And Jesus accomplished our salvation by the giving of his very self to lay down his life on our behalf. You know, a man will not likely give his life for a dog, or even a prized possession. But he will lay down his life for his wife, for his precious children. You see, we give ourselves completely to that which we highly value. Jesus gave himself because he valued you and I. And he desires our freedom and our purification from sin, seeking to make us his own prized possessions for the magnification of his greatness and his grace. So as you contend with worldly desires that threaten to overwhelm you like a flood, temptations to boast, to lie, to cheat, to give way to fear and despair, self-love, And self glory. Remember grace and her sister glory. We have these two reference points. We look to the past to see our salvation by the grace of God. And we also look to the future, our coming reward when we receive our glorious inheritance of the coming of Jesus Christ. Look back to grace, look ahead to glory as you live now in this present evil age to find your standing, to have your bearings and direction that we might renounce worldly desires and let God's grace and his glory fill us with desires that are pleasing to him. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we turn our focus now to fleshly desires. In verses one and two, Paul gives instruction about how we are to live socially as Christians. And then in verse three, he reminds the church at Crete of her former pagan and antisocial ways. Paul tells Titus to instruct the Christians at Crete to submit to their rulers, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You see, the people of Crete had a reputation for rebellion and insurrection against Roman rule. They're also known to be lazy gluttons. Just look back at chapter 1, verse 12. They're a lot like America. We love our freedom and our pleasures. We are an independent-minded people who question authority. We are indulgent. And Paul warns the church of today not to be tainted by these tendencies of the flesh. Perhaps you should think about, think before you forward that email that mocks our president. Perhaps you should reconsider listening to talk radio hosts that disdain our leaders. It is a free country and we have a right to critique. But the way we do it reflects our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do it with respect and gentleness. Avoid co-workers who are lazy and insubordinate because God is making a new society of people who put off the flesh and put on the spirit of godliness. Paul goes on to verse 2 and challenging us to speak no evil, and to avoid quarreling. Slander and gossip are all too easily excused and overlooked, even in the church. If you have a problem with someone, go directly to him or her, and in humility address it. Don't go talking about people behind their back. I believe we live in a culture that is desperately poor at confrontation and conflict resolution. Christians should be on the front lines, be leading the way to be shining examples of how to do confrontation and biblical peacemaking in a godly fashion. Well, Paul wraps up his instruction to the church and to us to be gentle and to show courtesy to everyone. These words means to be conciliatory, to be gracious, to have a humble and meek posture as you engage with people around you. A friend told me recently how she and her daughter were in a Costco store and a a fellow shopper, apparently out of frustration and impatience, just rammed into her little daughter. And in her gentle but desire to confront that, the other shopper just looked at her with a dirty look and continued to huff and puff behind her. Now, this did not happen in Lancaster County because these things don't happen in Lancaster County. But I think we could all affirm that we are surrounded by angry, tired, hurried, critical, and stressed out people. people who lack courtesy, civility, and respect. But before we pass judgment upon others, we need a reminder from Paul, who in verse 3 reminds us that we ourselves, we including him, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures. We were just like the people all around us, ignorant, lacking in wisdom, rebellious sheep wandering away to their own doom and destruction, in bondage to our fleshly desires. Paul includes himself, describing these people who were passing away their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another in return. It's into this deplorable condition. That God sent the gospel of his Son. In our flesh, we want to shake our fist at the government. We want to lash out against ornery and difficult people around us. But Paul challenges us to see others through the eyes of Jesus Christ, those who are lost and hopeless and perishing without the gospel. Without Christ, we are no better. God desires pity on all the people around us in the way that he moved the stubborn heart of Jonah to minister to the witless Dinovites who did not know their right hand from their left. God calls his people to subdue our fleshly desires, to put on the cloak of compassion towards those who are enslaved by their passions, One of our families had a challenging encounter not too long ago when a a neighbor nearby shared with them that her brother had come out. And she was so excited for her brother who was now open about his gay identity. You can only imagine the, the believer's awkward situation of how do I respond to this? Do I share the, I can't share the enthusiasm and I don't want to come across condemning And more and more believers will find themselves in similar situations. And in our flesh, we recoil at the things that we hear and see. I would counsel you from God's word that in such a situation, if when someone shares something like that with you, thank them. They just shared something with you intimate and personal, something that in many ways would be shameful and and not want to be shared as the family secret. And ask them, well, why are you so excited about this? Get into their story, enter into their world. And as you listen and love them, perhaps you have an opportunity to share that you're a Christian and believe God's word, and you believe that this is against God's will, but you want to listen and understand and pray for them. That would be quite witness. I I challenge believers to not withdraw nor to attack, but to enter in, to engage in people's worlds with questions, with compassion, to show concern and listening, to love the lost who are confused about God's will. You see, subduing our flesh may require us to respond to ungodliness with graciousness and patience. Engaging People may require us to go to people who have radically different worldviews, who have a wholly unbiblical outlook on life, yet engage them with respect and genuine care. Paul encourages us to remember the Lord's instruction as well as our condition apart from Christ as we learn to subdue the flesh and embrace God's desires for us. Well, lastly, we want to explore further how we might better understand God's desires as well as the godly desires he wants us to have. Verse 3 established our great need of salvation. We were mentally and morally depraved. We were deceived and enslaved by sin. We lived With malice and envy, those evil twins in hostility with others. And in response to this condition, God sends a third epiphany. The appearance of goodness and loving kindness. Grace has children. The grace of God manifested in his kindness and goodness upon the ungrateful and the rebellious. Verses 4 through 7 are one long sentence that many scholars believe are remnants of an early Christian creed. And in this creed, we learn that the source of salvation is not in ourselves. It's from God our Savior. This verb, He saved us in verse 5, is the anchor for the entire sentence. Our good deeds merit nothing. We are saved by mercy alone. We do not earn it. God does not owe it to us. Rather, the will of God is moved in compassion in response to our dire need and for his desire to see his glory manifest over all the earth. So how does God accomplish his salvation? Well, in verse 5 he says, it's by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit." In our basement, we have a water softener that regenerates itself every couple of days to clean out the filter. You and I need regeneration from outside of ourselves by the Holy Spirit to cleanse us and purify us who are far dirtier and filthier than the water that comes into your house. This washing may also refer to water baptism which baptism has no saving power in and of itself, but points to the true cleansing of sins when one repents and believes in Jesus Christ as Savior. The word renewal means to restore. There are several men in our church who enjoy restoring old cars into their mint condition. Likewise, God loves to restore. Wrecks such as us to be for his prized possessions. And scripture says here that God gives us his Holy Spirit and he is not stingy. Rather, he pours his Spirit upon us richly, abundantly. And after emphasizing our cleansing from sin, Paul declares in verse 7 that you and I have been justified by grace, giving us legal standing before the great judge that we are no longer condemned as criminals. We've been pardoned. And not only that, we have been adopted and made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, by which we anticipate a glorious inheritance. Our youngest child turned one a few months ago, and up until that point, this child was one of the happiest and most contented children we'd ever had, and we've had several but then he began teething, and the crankiness set in. And my family would testify that his crankiness can try my patience. And when he's fussy and needy, I have a choice. I can respond in my flesh with irritability and impatience. Or I can respond in the spirit with goodness. Goodness. And kindness. Now, which of these responses do you suppose are more effective? The latter works every time. But I have to be intentional. I have to check my flesh. I have to yield to the Spirit and to remember the one who loved me and gave himself for me, who pursued after a cranky runaway and made him a well-loved son of the living God. What godly desires does God desire of us? We need only to circle back to chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, to read what God expects, what he desires from us and for us. It's clear that God desires us to reflect the values of heaven and not of earth. To live by the Spirit rather than the flesh. To live for His glory and not our glory. By His grace and not by works. To be humble rather than judgmental. And so as God desires these things out of us, to live by the Spirit, to live for His glory, to live by His grace, He calls us to be trained in godliness to exercise self-control, to be submissive and obedient, to show gentleness and courtesy to all. The world and the flesh desire that which is fleeting, which satisfies for only a moment, that God desires what is good and will last for eternity. Train yourselves and help train others to desire what is good and pleases God to renew your passions in the likeness of Jesus Christ, who set his affection upon you to make you his beloved bride. Recently, a friend of mine celebrated his graduation from an adult degree completion program. And as friends and family were gathered around, he got their attention and paid tribute to his wife. And, And he made up this honorary induction into the society of stay-at-home moms. We began to praise her for her virtues and her sacrifices for caring for the children in their home and supporting him through the rigors of going back to finish his degree. It was moving to hear a man woo his wife with deep heartfelt gratitude and affection. My wife told me that when I finished my doctor, I needed to do the same for her I owe her big. Christ is a loving husband who woos his bride and pours out upon her his deepest affection. And we were not a faithful bride. We were not pure and clean, but rather defiled by the world and the flesh. Jesus came and sought a bride not one who was already holy, but one whom he would make holy and transform her desires away from self to that which is pleasing in the sight of God. Salvation is not a matter of suppressing desire. Rather, it's a matter of replacing false ones with true ones, weak ones with strong ones, worldly desires with godly desires desires. God is not down on desire. God made desire. He filled you with this insatiable desire that can only be satisfied in him. Heaven is a place where all of our desires will be fulfilled beyond our wildest imaginations while in Houston, my parents and I took our sons to the Children's Museum downtown, which of course is one of the biggest in the country. And we spent hours learning, and exploring, and playing, and learning how things work, and the place just kept going, and going, and we, we never seemed to exhaust all the opportunities to play, and learn, and enjoy. Heaven. Is a place of never ending growth and discovery, a place that will satisfy our every desire, even things we cannot even imagine now. Let Christ woo you, to set his affections upon you, and so diminish your worldly and fleshly desires that you might desire to do what is pleasing and good in the sight of the Father. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus you have set your affections upon us, that you have desired us, to know us, to transform us, and I pray that you would make us a people who desire what is good and pleasing in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.